Few topics are more controversial than money. Few topics are more controversial in the church. Few topics are more controversial in the culture than money. Now, sometimes people assume that an ancient book like the Bible can have nothing to say about modern economics. That is false. The Bible is absolutely relevant and absolutely authoritative in economics as in every other area of life. The Bible gives us certain economic truths and principles, certain truths and principles about money that we need today. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' teaching on money in Matthew chapter 6. And it's just, it's really interesting to me, even conversations I had after that sermon. You know, you've got some people who argue that Jesus taught an ascetic message, you know, asceticism, where basically you try to leave as much of the physical, material world behind. And on this view, the ideal Christian life is the simple life, a life of the bare necessities, the bare minimum. That's all. Uh, the godlier you are, the more you will pare down, the more you will simplify, the more you will do without. If you could just live on bread and water, that's what you would choose to do. And in many cases, those who take this ascetic view of Jesus' teaching really turn Jesus into a kind of first century Fidel Castro, uh, some kind of socialist who attacks wealth and privilege, who constantly champions the poor. And they'll say, after all, didn't Jesus focus our eyes on heavenly treasure rather than earthly treasure? Isn't the call to lay up heavenly treasure? Doesn't that mean we should be living ascetic lives? That's how the argument goes. But then you've got those on the other side who will say that Jesus actually taught a message of abundance. After all, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added unto you. Sounds like Jesus might be peddling some kind of prosperity gospel. Jesus did promise an abundant life to his disciples, and he told parables about multiplying talents and about making a return on investments and about doing what you want with what is your own property. Jesus really did tell stories about those things. He told stories where the businessman, the entrepreneur, is always the good guy. Jesus did do that. And so people will say, well, he must have taught a message not of asceticism, but of abundance. Well, which is it? Which is the real Jesus? The ascetic Jesus or the abundant Jesus? People can read Jesus' teaching and come to opposite conclusions not because Jesus contradicted himself, no. But because Jesus' teaching on money is it's sophisticated, it's deep, it's complex. You're not going to capture it in one saying or one slogan. And really the rest of the Bible is this way as well. When we come to the Apostle Paul and what he has to teach about money, we find these same dynamic truths in play. It's, it's, Paul will say certain things that might sound like he's an ascetic. And then he'll say other things that make it sound like he's got this message of abundance. You might ask, well, which is it? It's not just splitting the difference. It's something altogether different. It's a way of looking at wealth as a matter of kingdom stewardship. And I, we started looking at this a couple weeks ago. I want to go further in it this morning. Really focused on 1 Timothy chapter 6. What we find, Paul teaching is really just the same as Jesus. Wealth is good, but dangerous. It's good. It's a good gift of God. And if you give God thanks, you can enjoy wealth. But there's also a danger because wealth is deceitful. And how we desire wealth or how we might be tempted to trust in wealth or love wealth, that's where wealth can get us into a lot of trouble. Wealth is good, but there are certain temptations 
that surround it. Think of an analogy. Really, we could say every blessing of God is a good thing, but comes with certain dangers. Wealth is like wine. Wine is good. Wine is a blessing. Wine is a gift of God. Used rightly, we can drink wine to the glory of God. Psalm 104 says God gives wine to gladden the heart of man. To paraphrase Ben Franklin, we could say wine is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. It's one of God's good gifts. It's a great blessing. But at the same time, who would deny that wine is dangerous? Wine can be abused. It can be misused. Drunkenness is presented to us in the scripture as a terrible sin. So much so that 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot be a Christian if you are a drunkard. You will not go to heaven when you die if you live as a drunkard on this earth. The book of Proverbs and uh, so many other places in scripture, but especially Proverbs, is full of warnings about the evils of drunkenness. So what do we do with this? On the one hand, wine is a gift of God given to gladden the hearts of men. On the other hand, drunkenness is a great sin. We have to distinguish the proper use from the abuse of a thing. Martin Luther said the answer is never rejecting God's gifts, but rather learning how to use them properly and righteously. Martin Luther, in his own pithy way, said this. He said, do not suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the objects that are abused. Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we prohibit and abolish women? The sun, moon, and stars have been worshipped. Shall we pluck them out of the sky? I think Luther's exactly right. We certainly don't want to abolish women, and we're not going to pluck the sun, moon, and stars out of the sky. The way forward is to see these things as gifts and blessings of God and then to receive them rightly with thanksgiving. When it comes to wealth, this is really what it's all about. When it comes to wealth and how we view wealth and how we use wealth, there are three threads that need to be woven tightly together in our lives. Three threads. I've, I've got them right there in the title of the sermon. They're there in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Three threads we're going to talk about this morning and how they need to be tightly woven together in our lives. Enjoyment, generosity, and contentment. So let's look at each one of these threads and at the end I'll try to tie them together for us. First, enjoyment. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 17, God provides all things richly for our enjoyment. Just meditate on that statement for a minute. God provides all things richly for our enjoyment. This is part of Paul's instruction to the wealthy, those who are rich in this present age. And Paul wants us all to know, whatever God provides for us, he wants us to enjoy. God provides richly so that we can enjoy his gifts. Now, I think what opens us up to actually enjoying those gifts is giving God thanks. If you don't thank God, you might have a lot of stuff, but you can't really enjoy it. Okay, It's like having... A bottle of wine without a corkscrew to open it. Okay, God gives you a bottle of wine. The only way to really enjoy it is with a corkscrew to open it up and let the wine flow. That corkscrew is thanksgiving. You give God thanks and the blessings flow. You can enjoy what God has given. In fact, it's interesting to me here, as soon as Paul says that, that God gives us all these things richly to enjoy, he sort of puts a, a hedge around that. He gives certain warnings. And these are also things that the people who are rich need to hear. He gives certain warnings about riches that rich people need to know. He says, don't be haughty. You know, this is always a danger for the rich to take credit perhaps for your own wealth or to boast in it. Deuteronomy 8, 
Uh, which, of course, the whole book of Deuteronomy is a sermon by Moses. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses explains this. He says, when you get into the promised land, Moses is not going there with them, but when they get there, he says, you will be very wealthy. You'll become very wealthy, fabulously rich in the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be like another Garden of Eden for you. But he says, when you become wealthy, do not forget the Lord your God who gave you the power to gain wealth. Don't say, I did this with my own hands and my own strength and my own wisdom. Recognize all of these riches are God's gifts. Don't be arrogant, be grateful. That's a warning that Paul puts around our enjoyment of riches. And I think this is because Paul wants us to know that wealth is a comparative good, but not an ultimate good. What I mean by that when I say wealth is a comparative good, I mean wealth is better than some things if you compare wealth to other possibilities, other things out there. Wealth is better than some, but it's inferior to others. There are certain things that are better than wealth and should be preferred to wealth. One of the things that should be preferred to wealth that Proverbs teaches is having a good name, a good reputation. Being a good man, a man of your word. Proverbs 16.8 says, Better is a little with righteousness than great wealth without righteousness. If you had to choose between wealth and righteousness, which sooner or later everybody has to make that choice in their life over something, Proverbs says righteousness is better. Better to be righteous and poor than rich and wicked. Proverbs says wisdom is better than silver and gold. If you have to choose between wisdom and riches, choose Wisdom. Wealth is good, but wisdom is better. So don't boast in your wealth. It's not your ultimate good. It's not your greatest good. Your greatest good is pleasing God and knowing Him. Your highest good is being righteous and living according to God's will, God's law, God's design for you. So that's one thing the rich need to know is they enjoy their good gifts. They need to not become prideful. They need to remember their riches are not their ultimate good. Further, Paul goes on to say the rich must not set their hopes on riches because they are uncertain. Riches do not bring security. We think that they will. That's part of the deceitfulness of wealth. But no, riches do not bring security. Not in this life and certainly not in the life to come. Fortunes can be won and lost, made and unmade. Money is a tool and a resource, but it is always fragile. Just look at the ups and downs of the stock market or the real estate market. Wealth is fragile. Paul here really is echoing Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus talked about how moths and rust and thieves can destroy earthly wealth. Paul is echoing the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Proverbs 11 says, whoever trusts in riches will fall. Proverbs 13 says, wealth hastily gained will dwindle. Proverbs 22 says, whoever oppresses the poor to get rich will come to poverty himself. So there are all kinds of reminders that Scripture gives us. Wealth cannot bring security. So wealth is not your ultimate good, and wealth can't really provide you with any kind of true and lasting security. But if you keep those things in mind, if you have those caveats in view, those warnings in mind, then Paul says to the rich, which would be all of us, certainly by global or historical standards, Paul says to the rich, enjoy your riches. God has given to you abundantly that you might enjoy his gifts. God provides these gifts for our enjoyment and for our pleasure. And I would say this is actually a major focus in Scripture. Think about this. If you are a parent and you give Christmas gifts or birthday gifts to your children, 
You get those gifts because you want your children to enjoy them. You want to see that smile on your child's face. Now, every wise parent would say, well, this is not the ultimate gift I have to give. This is not the best thing in my child's life. But even these lesser gifts can be enjoyed. And you want to see your child enjoy the gifts. God, our Heavenly Father, wants to see us enjoy the gifts he gives to us. Psalm 128 says, eat the fruit of your la- eat the fruit of the labor of your hands and be blessed and it shall be well with you. Ecclesiastes stresses this again and again. It's there at the end of Ecclesiastes 5 we read this morning. It stresses enjoying the fruits of your labor, enjoying your wife, enjoying your family and enjoying the fruits of your labor, the riches that you've worked to provide for your family. Wealth is fundamentally good. We need to know that. We need to remember that. Wealth is part of God's good creation. God built all kinds of wealth, all kinds of treasures and riches into his world. And he wants us to enjoy those things as his gift. Proverbs 10 says, a diligent hand makes one rich. The blessing of the Lord brings riches. God does not... Uh, God does not withhold his gifts from us. God wants us to enjoy his gifts. He gives us these things for our enjoyment. Now, what this means is, God wants you to enjoy his gifts. What this means is, you should avoid any notion, any hint of false guilt over enjoying what God has given to you. No false guilt. No false guilt. It's not wrong for you to have more than others, just as it's not wrong for others to have more than you. This is sometimes why people feel guilty, because, oh, I have more than other people. Should I feel guilty about that? No. God distributes wealth as he sees fit for his own wise purposes. It is not wrong for you to enjoy God's gifts, even though at that very moment there are going to be some people somewhere in the world who are suffering in poverty. That was the case when Paul wrote 1 Timothy 6 too. Paul wrote 1 Timothy 6 and said to the rich, God's given to you richly, abundantly for you to enjoy at the very moment that there are certainly people out there in the world somewhere suffering in poverty. I think part of the problem here, it's not just that, that we don't really understand and remember the goodness of God's world, the goodness of God's creation. But also I think some Christians just think there's something pious about feeling guilty all the time. They want to feel guilty. They want to beat themselves up, the, the, the kind of religion of self-flagellation. They want to constantly beat themselves up, and, and, and it's a kind of woe-is-me kind of theology. They think there's something pious about feeling guilty all the time. But that's just not true, because actually what happens is that guilt keeps you from feeling the gratitude that you ought to feel. That's really what God wants. It's not your false guilt, but your gratitude. It's not being guilty, feeling guilty all the time that makes you pious. It's being thankful all the time that makes you truly pious. So Paul here is setting us free to enjoy God's gifts without guilt. John Calvin put it this way. Some people think of, of Calvin as a sort of minimalist himself, but actually that's not the case at all. Listen to what Calvin says. This is from his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says, God, by engrafting us into his Son, by uniting us with Christ Jesus, constitutes us anew to be lords of the world. So in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, we too are lords and kings over this world. He says that we may lawfully use as our own all the wealth with which he supplies us. And then Calvin goes on from there to give lots of illustrations, lots of examples of this. He says, God created food not only for our nourishment, but for our enjoyment and delight. 
the fact that food is not bland, that there's a multitude of flavors we can enjoy, that's God's gift to us. He says God has created clothing for us, not just out of necessity to cover our nakedness, but for beauty and honor. It's not just the bare minimum, but there, there's a kind of beauty to this. God gives many gifts that have more to do with pleasure than they do with necessity. Calvin even goes on and says this is how the whole creation is. God has clothed the flowers with beauty to greet our eyes. He gives music to delight our ears. And then Calvin goes on to address those who demanded minimalism, a life of of, of the bare minimum. He goes on and says they're being too severe. There's a kind of legalism in that kind of asceticism. So avoid false guilt receive God's gifts, and enjoy them. Some Christians allow guilt to keep them from enjoying God's gifts. Instead of feeling guilty about our privilege, we should give thanks for it. And I use that word privilege deliberately. Yes, there is such a thing as privilege in the world. Some people will always be more privileged than others. God did not create an egalitarian world where everybody's going to be at just the same level. No, there's a great variety in God's world. God seems to like that kind of diversity, even socioeconomic diversity. And those who have privilege don't feel guilty about it, give thanks for it. Now we'll see there's more to the story in a few minutes. But that's where you need to start. Give thanks for the privileges God has bestowed upon you. You know, it's really remarkable to me how many wealthy, godly men there are in Scripture. People in Scripture who combine godliness with wealth. Scripture is full of cases like this. Abraham was so wealthy, he had 318 fighting men in his household. None of you have a personal army that big. He probably had a household of well over a thousand people. Abraham was an ancient Middle Eastern sheik. He had enough wealth to support a traveling caravan of well over a thousand people. And he had 318 men at his disposal to go to war anytime he needed Jacob's household was so big, so wealthy, by the time they came to settle, they they took up the whole land of Goshen. He had wealth to spare, so much so he could give a very extravagant gift to Esau, his brother, when they were reunited. In the book of Ruth, Boaz was a man of great means. And out of those means, he of course helped Ruth. And Naomi, Moses was from the upper class, highly educated. Job was a wealthy king, and yeah, Job lost it all, but then at the end of the story, he gets it all back, and then some. Job was one of the wealthiest and godliest men to ever walk the face of the earth. The apostles Jesus called were not from the lower class, they were at least middle class. Some were probably upper middle class or even upper class. Many were prosperous business owners. We we see that in the Gospels. I think this is really important because sometimes we demonize the rich. Certainly there's a lot of that in our culture to demonize anybody who's wealthy, no matter how they got their wealth. And sometimes we're overly romantic about the little guy. Sometimes we're overly romantic about grassroots cultural change, sort of bottom-up cultural transformation. And that does play a role. I'm I'm not negating that altogether. But more often than not, the real drivers of cultural change, for better or worse, are the wealthy and the well-connected. 
that's just how it is. Wealth is a form of power. Those who have more of it tend to have more power in the world, more power to shape the way the world looks, more power to shape the culture. I would say one of the greatest needs of the day is more wealthy Christians. We need some Christian billionaires. All right? We need powerful Christians who start and run powerful, influential businesses and other institutions. Powerful, wealthy Christians who become so essential they are uncancelable. We need Christians who are elites. Because reformation, social reformation, is usually more from the top down than it is the bottom up. And so we should not demonize wealth or the wealthy. Obviously, there are righteous and unrighteous wealthy people, so we have to make that distinction. But we should not demonize wealth or the wealthy And Paul's showing us that here. God gives us all things richly for our enjoyment. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with riches. Away with all false guilt. Banish all false guilt. Give God thanks and enjoy what he provides. But really all of this brings us to our second thread here that needs to be woven together with the first. Not only do riches bring great enjoyment for those who give thanks, they also bring great Responsibility With great wealth, there is great responsibility. And that's something Paul also teaches here. God gives us wealth to enjoy, that's verse 16. But with great wealth comes great obligation, and that's found in verse 17. The rich, Paul says, should do good. They should be rich in good deeds. They're rich monetarily. They should be rich in good deeds as well. They should be generous and ready to share, Paul says, so that they can store up for themselves a good foundation for the future. And again, this seems to be echoing what Jesus teaches in uh, Matthew chapter 6 about heavenly treasure. We are to use earthly treasure in a way that reveals Jesus is our greatest treasure. We are to use earthly treasure in such a way that we stockpile heavenly treasure to convert earthly currency into a heavenly currency. And the way we do that is by using our money to serve the needs of others. That's what Paul shows us here. In Scripture, giving money away starts, doesn't end here, but it starts here, it starts with tithing to the church. Simply put, a tithe is 10% of one's increase. In Numbers chapter 18, the Lord commands that the tithe be given to the Levites because of their ministry at the tabernacle. The New Testament seems to carry this on. In Matthew 23, as Jesus is in the middle of pronouncing woes and curses on the Pharisees for all the ways that they are hypocritical, he does commend them for their tithing and even their uh, very scrupulous tithing. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 tells the Corinthians to set aside their gift on the first day of the week. Obviously, that's the day they gather for worship. They're to set aside their gift on the first day of the week as the Lord prospers. That phrase, as the Lord prospers, suggests a kind of proportionality in their giving. Your giving will be proportional to your prospering. Well, the only proportion Scripture ever gives us is the tithe. So it seems this is still in force in the New Testament. But this is what you need to understand. Tithing not only stores up heavenly treasure, it can also bring earthly blessing in this life. I'm not guaranteeing you anything here. I'm not preaching a a health and wealth prosperity gospel here. But it is interesting that in more than one place in Scripture, tithing is tied not only to heavenly treasure, but to earthly treasure as well. It just seems that those who tithe 
Perhaps they're better at money because of the discipline that comes with it. Or perhaps God just simply blesses it. You can ask this question. Would you rather have 90% of your income with God's blessing or 100% without? I'd say God's blessing more than makes up for the 10% you give away. Proverbs chapter 3. Solomon says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits, and then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. It's not going to happen in every single case, but that's a kind of principle that governs the world. Malachi chapter 3, the prophet says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and the Lord will open the windows of heaven to pour out blessings. There's a blessing attached to the practice of tithing. Now, I think here in 1 Timothy 6, Paul's not really talking about tithing. I think he presupposes that, because that's in so many other places in Scripture. But I think he's talking about the rich giving away riches over and above the tithe. Now, note this. When they give away riches over and above the tithe, they are still rich. Even when they have fulfilled all their responsibilities and obligations, they are still categorized as rich, but they're going to give enough away that it in some form or fashion impacts their lifestyle. It's probably going to to, to feel and seem sacrificial to them. It's going to be a sacrificial gift that they make. Now, when it comes to this kind of giving, there are all kinds of questions that come up. Who do we help? How do we help them? How do we help without hurting? And the Bible gives us some really specific guidelines in this. The Bible gives us a lot of wisdom. The Bible gives us some really significant principles here. There are actually people you are forbidden to help. Have you thought about this? There are actually people you are forbidden to help with some kind of handout. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, if anyone will not work, neither should he See, the Bible takes personal responsibility so seriously that those who are irresponsible should not have their sloth subsidized. Those who are lazy, those who are irresponsible, those who are slothful should not be subsidized. Their hunger pains should drive them to work. Their hunger pains are God's way of driving them to get a good work ethic. And you short-circuit that process if you subsidize their laziness. They're not going to learn the lessons, the hard lessons God has for them if you're constantly subsidizing them. So it's possible to help in a way that hurts, to actually subsidize all the wrong things. Giving handouts to able-bodied, lazy people actually will hurt them. But what about those we should help? Obviously, there are many who are able-bodied and want to work and want to provide for themselves, but for whatever reason, they just can't do so. They just can't make ends meet. What do you do? Well, again, the Bible is full of wisdom and principles that can guide us in effective and truly helpful generosity. There's a lot here I could say. Let me just pick one thing out in particular here. Maybe maybe I'll do a couple things here. Leviticus 19 gives us what I call the gleaning principle. What is the practice of gleaning? Well, if you read Leviticus 19, you find that landowners who would by definition, the the wealthy, landowners were commanded to leave the edges of their fields unharvested so that the poor could go through and harvest those edges of the fields in order to provide for themselves. So the gleaning principle, this is absolutely genius. This, This is the wisdom of God's law. This is why we need God's law. We want to understand what our society should do, what social policy should look like. Go to the Torah because there's so much wisdom there. This is part of that. The gleaning principle is is just brilliant. 
It brings together the generosity of the rich and the industry of the poor. And it ties the rich and poor together. The rich must share what they have, but the poor get to keep their dignity. The rich share with the poor, but the poor still have their dignity because they're still working. The rich are not allowed to maximize profits for themselves. They have to share. And the poor don't get impersonal handouts. Rather, the help comes in the context of a relationship. Because, hey, if I'm a poor person, I'm walking through your field. This is how Boaz got to know Ruth, because Ruth was a gleaner. And Boaz was a wealthy landowner. We know where that led. See, when when this question comes up, how do I help? The gleaning principle shows us one of the ways we can do that wisely in a way that's truly effective. Here's another question. Okay, Who do I help? There, there, There are obviously millions upon millions of people who live in poverty in the world today. Where do I start? The problem can be overwhelming. Where do I even begin? Well, here the key principle that should guide our giving is what I call the principle of proximity. The closer you are to someone, the more obligation you have to them. It's sort of a sliding scale. The closer you are, the greater your obligation. The further away, the less your obligation. The connection that that you have with others, which can be through your family or through your church family, uh, it can be some kind of relational proximity or certainly geographic pro- proximity. This matters, and this helps to guide our giving, our generosity, the principle of proximity. How close are you to somebody geographically or relationally in terms of your family or your church family? How closely connected are you? The principle of proximity is important because it not only stresses what our obligations are, but it also puts limits on those obligations. You're not obligated to help every person in the world. If, if, if it was an obligation of every single person in the world, then Jesus was a sinner. Because Jesus did not help everybody. Jesus helped those who were near to him. Jesus practiced the principle of proximity. And if we don't believe in this principle, we got to explain how Jesus is somehow not a sinner, even though he didn't heal every single person or, or minister to every single poor person in the world. What the principle of proximity says is that you should start helping with those who are closest to you. The Israelites understood this really well because it was laid out for them in the law. It was embedded in Israel's law, in the Torah. Laws like the Kinsman Redeemer Institution, which basically says you are to help, you are to be a redeemer to family members who are in need. You are to pay their debts or free them from slavery. That's what the Kinsman Redeemer is all about. It's a kinsman who is connected, who, who has proximity relationally, and perhaps geographically as well, that's what drives your sense of obligation. You look at Torah as a whole, Israelite, the Israelites understood this very well. Your greatest responsibility in ancient Israel would be to your own family, then to your tribe, then to your fellow Israelites in other tribes, and then finally to the other nations. It's like there are these concentric circles moving outward. And that's how you're to look at obligation. Now, Paul's already established the principle of proximity in this letter. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith. So where does your giving start? Where do your obligations start? Well, with your own family, your own extended family, and especially your own household. Think about what Paul's saying here. You have an obligation to care for those in your own household. And, of course, the, 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 the obligation to provide falls first and foremost to men. I won't go into all the reasons for that here, but I, that's something I think Scripture is very clear about. Men, you have an obligation to provide for your family. 
to work hard and provide for your family. Well, let me extend that for you a little bit. Odds are, men, that your wife is going to outlive you. Okay? Odds are your wife will outlive you. You should do all you can to make sure she will be provided for after you're gone. That's part of your obligation. Proverbs says a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children. That is to say, he continues to provide for his family to some degree, even after he's dead and gone. This obligation to provide, this obligation to take care of your own. Again, Paul describes our varying obligations with that word especially. I've already mentioned 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says if anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household. He's denied the faith. In Galatians 6, he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So your giving really should start with your own family. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it starts with your church family. In Galatians chapter 6, that's that, that's got to have a higher priority, those who belong to the same household of faith that you do. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says the sheep and the goats will be divided from one another based on how they treated the least of these. Well, who are the least of these? The least of these, it's clear from the parable, are fellow Christians, probably itinerant missionaries and apostles. So it's, it's caring for fellow members of the family of God. In the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, The real tragedy of the story is that the priest and the Levite refused to help someone close to them. They weren't responsible to help every single person in need anywhere in the world, but they were responsible to help that person close to them, the person who was in need on the road they were traveling. They had an opportunity to help somebody nearby, and they refused. That's the tragedy of the story. There was geographic proximity, and they refused to help. And of course, the Good Samaritan is good because he does help. He doesn't really have relational proximity to this person. They're not related. He's of a different ethnicity. But because there's geographic proximity, he helps. Let me take this a little bit further. First John chapter 3 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, God's love does not abide in him. Now think about that passage. Think about what it would mean to read that passage without the principle of proximity. You might see people in need on your TV. (laughs) And then what who live in in, in some faraway part of the world. What are you supposed to do? Give all your goods away to help poor people? John shows us here in 1 John 3, love really does express itself in tangible ways. Love requires meeting physical needs. But there's no end to needy people in the world. Is there anything that limits or at least guides my obligations? We'll compare 1 John chapter 3 to another passage in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul's writing to, to the Corinthians to defend himself in part, but also because he's taking up a collection that he wants to deliver to the saints in Jerusalem because there is a famine down in Jerusalem, and it's especially the Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering, who are on the verge of starving to death. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians to encourage them to make a gift to those faraway Christians in Jerusalem that he will deliver. But it's really interesting. Paul doesn't go the first John 3 route. It's interesting. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, he says, I do not say this as a command when he's calling on them to give. In chapter 9, he says he wants them to give willingly, not under compulsion. That is to say, giving to Paul's collection for the Jerusalem Christians is voluntary. There is no ought 
There's no obligation. There's no deep responsibility because, well, there's not a lot of proximity. There's some, but not a lot. So 1 John chapter 3 is describing how you help a brother near to you. You see a need in your brother who lives near to you. You help him because that's who you can help. You have opportunity to help him. In 2 Corinthians, the obligation is not as strong because the need is not as near. It's not as near at hand. There's an opportunity to help, but not an obligation. There's a possibility of helping, but not a responsibility. So they're free to help, and that's what Paul wants them to do. But they're not necessarily sinning if they don't. See, you cannot help everyone. And it's good to know that. You can't help everyone. It's not a sin to be finite. You're not responsible to each and every person in need all across planet Earth. You can choose to help those who are far away. In many cases, we ought to be choosing to help those who are far away because we have the opportunity to do so, but it's not an obligation. You are obligated to help those closest to you when they are in need. And this is how Christians have always dealt with this. Just to give you one example, this is Augustine. Augustine said, since you cannot do good to all, you are to pay special attention to those who, by the accidents of time, or place, or circumstances are brought into closer connection with you. That's exactly right. That's Augustine stating the principle of proximity. You can't help everyone. You should help those nearest to you. Keep clear the distinction between cases where you are obligated to help and cases where you are free to help, but not obligated, strictly speaking. You can't love humanity in general. You can only love particular persons. At least if I say I love humanity in general, that doesn't really mean anything. How does my love reach humanity in general? No, your love has got to be directed to particular persons. And the closer you are to someone, the greater your obligation is to them. And this is really, really important. You know, it might seem like I'm trying to get get us off the hook. So we don't feel guilty about people we're not helping. But that's not the case at all. What I actually want to do is put you on the hook to help those you can. We will actually be more effective at giving if we are focused on our responsibilities. To be responsible to everyone is to be responsible to no one. But to be responsible to those inner circles of the rings, well, that's real obligation. There really is obligation there. Don't confuse possibilities with responsibilities. Don't confuse opportunities with obligations. But take your responsibilities and your obligations with the utmost seriousness. Those inner circles really do matter. You can't help those far away if you choose to, but it's a choice, not an obligation. You are always obligated to help those nearest to you. And finally, we come to the third thread here, contentment. Paul has uh, addressed contentment earlier in the chapter, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And contentment is so important. Of course, we know that it is comparison more than anything else that kills contentment. We compare ourselves to others and usually somebody who's got more than we do and we wish we had their life and we start to get jealous or we get envious. And that kills contentment. Paul is going to show us how we can have contented Hearts In a world where people's circumstances vary, well, some will have more than others, some will have an easier life than others, how can we be content? When you can always find somebody who's got it better than you, how can you be content? Well, look at what Paul says here. In verse 5, he says, there are some who try to use godliness as a means of gain. There are some who, because they lack contentment, 
want to turn God into a vending machine. And if they punch in the right buttons of godliness, they think they can get God's blessing. That's the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. They don't make God their treasure. They use God to get treasure for themselves. And so they look at godliness as a way of, uh, of padding their bank account, gaining more stuff for themselves. Verse 6, Paul goes on to say, godliness with contentment is great gain. To be godly and contentment, that is the way of true riches. That is the way of true wealth. Not necessarily earthly wealth. Again, it can be heavenly wealth. But that's the way of great gain. A life of contentment is a life of gain because it's a life of joy and peace. That's what God will give to you. What is contentment? Contentment does not mean that we are desireless blocks. It does not mean that we become Buddhists or Stoics and we kill all passion or ambition. No, the contented person can still have desires and ambitions. You can be perfectly content and still go buy something new. You can be perfectly content and desire to replace something in your house that broke. The key to contentment is this. The contented man's happiness is not based on having all his desires or even his needs met. To be content means you can be happy with or without When Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in Philippians 4, that's what he's talking about. I can be content with a lot or I can be content with a little because my contentment is not based on circumstances. My contentment is found in God himself. The contented man has rightly ordered loves. That is to say, he loves things in the right way and in the right proportion. And so he can enjoy God's gifts without turning those gifts into his God. And so he can also go without those gifts if they're taken away from him. Because even if those gifts are taken away from him, well, he still has his God. Because he hasn't made his possessions into his God, even if those possessions are taken away, he still has his God. Because he's serving the true God. That's what contentment looks like. Paul goes on to explain this in the next verse. Verse 7 really echoes Job chapter 1. It really echoes Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Paul says, we brought nothing into this world and can take nothing out. Job and Solomon say, naked I came into this world and naked I shall leave it. That's Job in chapter 1. That's basically what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. What is Paul saying? He's saying, look, some people have a big house, some people have a small house. Some people have a big car, some people have a small car. But we all have the same size gasket. We came in naked, we're leaving this world naked. Death is the great equalizer. So look at your current well, in light of your coming death. That's what he's saying. And that will relativize the importance of wealth in your life. This is the Christian view of possessions. The Christian view of wealth. The Christian needs possessions the least. He enjoys them the most. And he gives them away the most freely. That's the Christian view. We need them the least. We, we, we enjoy them the most. And we give them away the most freely. We are thankful for what we have, and we receive it all as a gift. But if the Lord takes it away, we can live with that because our joy is tied to the giver and not to the gifts. Ultimately, we find our joy in God himself, and that can't be taken away. Verse 9, the opposite of contentment, of course, is greed. Greed is this insatiable desire for more. It's what uh, we read in Ecclesiastes 5. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. That's greed. That's what greed looks like, this insatiable desire. 
And that's what Paul describes here. Those who desire to be rich, those who have an inordinate desire for riches, those who want riches more than is appropriate, who give riches too high a priority in their hearts. Those people, Paul says, will fall into temptation. Think about the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. It is the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches that choke out the seed of the word. Those are the thorns that choke the seed. The cares of this world and the love of riches. Many people have apostatized because they love money more than God. And they wanted to be rich more than they wanted to be godly. They wrap themselves up in worldly concerns and worldly cares. This desire for worldly wealth. And it choked the spiritual life right out of them. And they died spiritually. And they will bring themselves to many ruins, as Paul goes on to say. Those who make an idol of riches, Paul says, fall into a snare. They get trapped by their own desires. They fall into a pit of their own making. says they fall into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. See, greed, as much as lust or any other inordinate desire, can lead a man into apostasy. This is what mammon can do to us. It can utterly destroy us. Paul goes on to say, the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money will produce all kinds of sin in your life. Where does theft come from? Just to give you one example, it comes from a love of money. That's why people go out and steal, because they love money. The love of money is a sin that multiplies into many other sins in our lives. It's like a cancer that starts in one place, but then it spreads through the whole body and brings death. Paul says it is through this craving for money that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The love of money brings us to ruin. Paul threatens terrible things for those who want riches too much. And of course, Jesus and Moses and Solomon all give the exact same warnings about wealth. What's the right view of wealth? Love God and use money. Don't love money and use God. Love God and use money. Or to put it another way, use money as a way of loving people. That's why God's given you your money. God gives his gifts to you, yes, for you to enjoy, but also for you to share. Nothing will counter greed more Generosity. God gives you his gifts for you to enjoy, but also for you to share so God can give his gifts to other people through you. And nothing counters greed more than generosity. Generosity puts money in its rightful place in its life. You can say to money, you can say to mammon, see mammon, I am not worshiping you because I am giving you away. Mammon, I'm not worshiping you because I am sharing you with others. That's how you humble the almighty dollar. That's how you put money in its rightful place in your life. I want to close with a story that takes all three of these threads and ties them together. It's the story of Jimmy Lay. Perhaps you've heard of him. Uh, He was a street vendor in China. And he fled to Hong Kong as a stowaway on a boat. And then he became a factory worker and he kind of worked his way up. In, in that company, and then he became a, an entrepreneur, actually kind of serial entrepreneur, businessman, and he was so successful, he became a billionaire. But that's not the only thing that happened to him in Hong Kong. Not only did he, did he become a billionaire, but he also became a Christian. 
And so as he started these many businesses and he started several newspapers, he was hugely successful. But he also tried to use his, his influence, his power, his wealth in Christian ways, pushing for democracy and for freedom and freedom of speech, basically Christian principles of government in that part of the world. Well, when China took over Hong Kong, he began uh, working against the Communist Party. He was part of this subversive movement, again, investing heavily in pro-democracy and pro-freedom causes, so much so that in 2020 he was arrested by the Chinese government. He posted bail. Bail was set at some exorbitant amount, but of course he had the money, so he paid it. He was then falsely accused of bail fraud, so his bail was revoked, and he is in prison right now. Now think about this. Jimmy Lay is a man who had it all. The wealthiest of the wealthy. This guy was a billionaire, not just in the 1%, but the 0.1%. He had it all. He had everything. The wealthiest of the wealthy. Now he has had all his wealth and all his freedom taken from him. But you know what he said about it? He said in an interview, he said, being imprisoned for his Christian convictions is, quote, the pinnacle of my life. Not becoming a billionaire, that's not the pinnacle of his life, but being persecuted for Jesus. That's the pinnacle of his life. This is a man who has tied together these three threads of enjoyment, generosity, and contentment. He knows how to enjoy the gifts God richly bestows. He knows how to be generous, using his wealth to help and serve others. And he knows how to be content, even though now all his wealth has been taken away from him unjustly. Because even as a poor man languishing in prison, he is happier than ever. That is the Christian view of wealth. Jimmy Lay might die with nothing, but he will die a wealthy man in the kingdom of God. The Christian needs possessions the least, he enjoys them the most, and he gives them away the most fruit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.